Welcome back to the quarter two 2022 edition of Thinks, Trends, and Takeaways, the audio companion of Thinkscapes. I'm your host, Jacob, the head of Thinks Labs. For those unfamiliar, Thinkscapes is a quarterly publication sorting the signal from the noise in information security research. The current edition and all past editions can be found for free at thinks.com TS. Like the previous edition, this episode focuses on content released, published, or presented since the Q1 2022 quarterly release. It's worth noting that even with conferences rescheduled to this quarter from the last, a larger share of selected content was originally released in the form of blog posts. This may be due to researchers delaying their publication until one of the three Las Vegas conferences, Black Hat USA, DEF CON, or B-Size Las Vegas. Regardless, high-quality blog posts and technical reports covered content in almost every theme. As a reminder, we would appreciate your help in catching any interesting work that may have fallen through the cracks. Any papers, presentations, or blog posts are welcome. Please send them to ts at thinks.com. This issue includes talks drawn from over a dozen conferences and 150 security blogs. As always, Thinks Labs is happy to notify you when we release a new issue. Sign up on the Thinkscapes homepage at thinks.com ts. Three themes stuck out as we were compiling the content marked for inclusion. Novel and legacy network security research, modern languages and supporting ecosystems, and a glimpse into the approach of key researchers targeting a novel environment. For theme one, security of networks, modern and legacy, networks have traditionally been a field focused primarily on the optimization and betterment of existing technologies. It's interesting to see multiple works covering network security from a different perspective, both supposedly invisible portions of the legacy network stack and completely novel networks that have emerged relatively recently. This theme explores attacking load balancers that terminate encryption, the network and devices that interact with Apple's new Find My feature, and a look at the Bitcoin network from a variety of perspectives. Theme two, languages and their ecosystems. New languages that are designed with security as a first-class feature are gaining popularity in products large and small. Along with the language itself, new languages are bundling build systems and dependency management into the core tool chain. This theme looks at novel work, both in how those languages and ecosystems can improve security and instances where they add attack surface. Theme three, deep dives into deep places. Work in this theme is centered around low level portions of a system from a CPU component to kernel security. In addition to highlighting security issues, the process by which each of the researchers learned about and instrumented their respective targets is educational for others tackling novel environments. From an extensive review of AMD's security hardware to Microsoft's anti-malware privilege level to a kernel researcher exploring another operating system, work in this theme provides more than just a list of fixed security vulnerabilities. And lastly, as always, there's the nifty sundries we identified. There are always some papers that do not fit precisely into any emergent theme for the issue, but still warrant inclusion. This quarter includes work on applying multi-objective optimization on fuzzing, finding vulnerabilities in document parsers, some interesting interactions with parsing HTML, and finally, a new type of account hijacking that's made possible by services adding SSO integrations. So let's start with our first theme, focusing on the security of networks, both modern and legacy. We start with I Am Become Load Balancer, Owner of Your Network by Nate Warfield. This work looks at both a recent exploit for F5 big IP load balancers and what can be done post-exploitation. These load balancers usually are used to terminate SSL or TLS, so they can see or modify all traffic unencrypted. 
While the management is supposed to be entirely out of band, a number of serious vulnerabilities over the last few years has highlighted weaknesses on the user-facing traffic plane. The most recent vulnerability presented for May 2022 fits into a single tweet, but once code execution is required, next steps are complicated due to F5's remote logging and synchronization of configuration. If an attacker makes the wrong change, it will be replicated across the network and could cause massive impact, alerting defenders quickly. We found this work interesting because load balancers are supposed to be unnoticeable in the network path, yet this work shows they are a ripe target with significant impact. By design, they must act as a parser for untrusted user input and are positioned in a place of privilege in the stack. Carefully consider every component in the path between an attacker and their target. More than just the endpoint may be in scope. Next up is Evil Never Sleeps When Wireless Malware Stays On After Turning Off iPhones by Issa Klassen et al. This paper explores modern iPhone's low power mode, or LPM. LPM is a mode of operation entered either when an iPhone is turned off by the user or when the battery is insufficient to keep iOS running. To support the Find My Location feature, as well as some payment or access cards and keys, LPM keeps the ultra-wideband, NFC, and Bluetooth radios active. Exploring the functionality provided in LPM and how is it implemented via wireless interfaces provides some possible attacks on changing the Find My behavior. For example, allowing an attacker to track a device turned off by its owner. Additionally, a few limitations are highlighted based on the pre-cached Find My advertisements that cannot be regenerated until after iOS is booted and the user is authenticated. While we note that this specific attack will have little real-world impact, the work highlights the complexity of modern devices and how our notions of on and off must evolve alongside technology's interpretation. A software update can drastically change the behavior of the device. Most of the security and privacy concerns in this work were specific to opaque messaging, but seeing how devices can change with an over-the-air update shows the flexibility of these new platforms. Our next work looks at the same Find My network from a different angle. There's AirTag of the Clones, Shenanigans with Liberated Item Finders by Thomas Roth et al. Apple AirTags are low-cost trackers that make use of the Find My network to locate the tags around the world, even in areas outside of the range of conventional wireless networks. As most Apple hardware devices are automatically enlisted to act as part of this network, and Apple devices are commonplace, the Find My network may be one of the largest wireless networks outside of traditional cellular or Wi-Fi. While there has been past research on how AirTags may be used for stalking or other malicious purposes, this work explored the hardware itself, reverse engineering and building open source tooling to assist in the exploration of how the devices operate and interact with other nodes in the Find My network. Beginning with a low-cost power glitching attack, the researchers were able to gain access to the firmware of both the device and the device's new ultra-wideband radio that allows for fine-grain location reporting. Then the researchers were able to change some of its behavior of the device, including serial number, audio alerts, etc. Additionally, they demonstrated the ability to downgrade the firmware or desynchronize the firmware versions between the device and the ultra-wideband radio controller. The major takeaway of this work is that the tools provided allow others to explore this new network. Outside of fixed cellular and Wi-Fi installations, few wireless networks have offered the coverage and functionality of the Find My network. Exploring how these ad hoc networks interact with other devices in society will offer interesting outcomes. Last in this theme, there's Are Blockchains Decentralized? by Evan Sultanik et al. There has been extensive research into the cryptographic promises made by the technology underlying cryptocurrencies. 
This work looks at the oft-repeated claims of decentralization. Breaking down decentralization into multiple aspects, authoritative, consensus, motivational, topological, network, and software centrality, each is examined to understand the risk to the blockchain by a small number of malicious entities. A number of issues are identified both in theory and in the deployed network. While some issues can be addressed, such as the virgin disparity of nodes, others require new research to eliminate, for example, the cyber cost to ensure decentralization. The results indicate that a majority of individuals running nodes with the aim of strengthening the network security contribute nothing to its overall security, and private or undocumented functionality plays a key role in the network's veracity. We note two takeaways from this paper. First, breaking down the technical, social, and incentive-based models of any system allows for better analysis of the claims of centralization. This work highlights that despite the almost accurate claims of needing 51% of the computational power to subvert the Bitcoin network, you only need to subvert one of four developer accounts or two of the four major mining pools. Secondly, Thompson's reflections on trusting trust is especially relevant to the cryptocurrency space. Cryptocurrencies require trusting a large number of individuals who may not have the same incentives to act in a manner that benefits the end user. This paper highlights that the group is more diverse than initially thought, including Tor nodes, developers of shared dependencies, and closed source mining frameworks. Moving into our next theme, there's languages and their ecosystems. We start with Stephen McGill's What Log4j Teaches Us About the Software Supply Chain. This keynote explored the response to the Log4Shell exploit released late in 2021 from the perspective of the Maven Central repository owners. The exploit targeted a vulnerability in Log4j, a popular dependency in many Java-based applications, with an impressive 70,000 applications directly depending on it, and almost 175,000 transitively depending on it. One application in particular had 30 levels of dependency separating the application itself from Log4j. The Log4j incident was complicated by an incomplete initial patch. The data revealed that the projects that were early to update were quick to adapt to changing versions, with a long tail of projects that never updated but that persisted indefinitely. Finally, the author presented a cautionary tale of modern software supply chain attacks, where versions of dependencies were either corrupted or typo-squatted. Automatic build and dependency systems still leave some thorny challenges left to solve. We note three key takeaways from this presentation. First, that the data presents the best view possible for the response to log4j vulnerability. Projects that use automatic build systems to manage dependencies. Even with the skewed data for a vulnerability that was mainstream news, a significant percentage of downloads continue to be for vulnerable versions. For less amplified weaknesses, the percentage of updated projects is much lower. Second, software build materials, or SBOM, only provide the most basic information that can indicate a vulnerability's applicability. SBOMs can over-approximate applicability by conflating inclusion with use, or use in a manner that allows exploitation, resulting in overwhelming responders to a new bug. Unless the context of use is exposed, it's impossible to know if the 35% of projects still consuming vulnerable versions are in fact vulnerable, or perhaps not logging any user-provided data. And last, automatically tracking the most recent versions can offer easy protection against zero days, but must be coupled with robust testing and validation that the new version still works as expected and does not come with any other bonus functionality, such as denial service or credential exfiltration. Next up, there's the Connie Russ Verifier by Daniel Schwartz-Narbonne and Zayed Hassan. 
This work explores formal verification of a number of security-relevant properties and unsafe rust blocks. In traditional rust development, there's a large drop-off in safety for all code developed inside of an unsafe block that can propagate back into the safe or type-check code. Connie works to even out that drop-off by using formal verification to guarantee the absence of certain weaknesses in unsafe code. Future development will add to the five classes of errors automatically checked in two types of developer-specified properties, providing closer parity to safe rust when unsafe rust is used in a predictable manner. We love this work because while there are known security properties associated with a type check or safe rust, unsafe rust offers no such protections and even a small amount of unsafe code can introduce vulnerabilities into a largely safe code base. Tools like Connie offer the ability to retain the safety of checked rust with the flexibility offered by unsafe rust, even with the listed conditions that Connie is unable to verify. Taking an adversarial view of modern software projects, there's cross-language attacks by Samuel Mergendahl et al. This work looked at the security properties promised by both runtime protections on legacy code, for example, ASLR, CFI, and DEP, and those built into more modern languages, focusing primarily on Rust. The authors note that due to differences in those properties, a multi-language code base can be more vulnerable to memory corruption attacks than a single language application with best practice mitigations in place. The majority of the attacks details stem from the ability of C or C++ code to change Rust's memory state, then Rust code can be circumvented to run arbitrary code, since Rust does not have CFI. The CFI-protected C or C++ code is used to mutate the state of Rust language environment, but the actual exploit is triggered within Rust, as there are fewer runtime protections due to the more stringent compile time guarantees. Guarantees broken in a multi-language environment. This is interesting because the common consensus is that gradually porting a code base to or adding new components in a safer language is guaranteed to reduce attack surface. This work highlights that there are disparities in the security properties between the improvements made to protect legacy code and the inbuilt safety guarantees in safer languages that can open new vulnerabilities. We note that while this work does in fact highlight that some safety guarantees offered by pro programming languages can be violated, the overall burden on an attacker is likely increased over continuing to develop in a purely legacy language. Finally, in this theme, there's software update strategies, a quantitative evaluation against advanced persistent threats by Giorgio Tiziodal. This paper takes a detailed look at a data set of APT attacks from 2008 until 2020. The authors built a database of APT campaigns and then present a methodology to analyze the attack vectors, vulnerabilities, and software exploited by 86 different APTs in more than 350 campaigns over 12 years. The prioritization of software updates proves to be a key factor to reduce the impact of these intrusions. This is the first look at a public data set to correlate APT campaigns, techniques used, CVEs, and vulnerable products. The authors observe that preventative measures like rapid deployment of software updates and their dependencies can substantially reduce the probability of being compromised by an APT using public exploits for known vulnerabilities. There is a clear trend towards known exploitable vectors, thus the authors present a conclusion that improved patch management will help organizations even against APTs. From this work, we note that the notion of delaying the patches may need to be challenged in the face of data showing APT campaigns are leveraging these vulnerabilities to gain access to organizations. Security and IT teams may need to switch to faster patching models to keep in front of these known attacks as they offer an easier route to attackers than zero days. For our final theme, we launch into deep dives into deep places, starting with AMD Secure Processor for Confidential Computing Security Review by Sifra Cohen et al. 
Following last quarter's theme on confidential computing, this work by Google and AMD provides a deep security review of AMD's security components, both hardware and firmware. The goal of one of these components, SEV SMP, is to allow end users to create virtual machines that the host, in essence cloud provider, has no access to. The end user only trusts the AMD CPU and associated firmware. This work takes a deep look at the security of trusted components and finds numerous vulnerabilities, which have been fixed. While the researchers had access to the source code underlying the system, they explained in their report all the ways they were able to review the security without immediately using source access. Many of the discovered vulnerabilities only impact the AMD platform, but the methodologies for their discovery are generic enough to apply to other black box systems and cryptography code. Highlighting how to use Weichproof and PCIe Screamer to interact with the cryptographic functionality and filtering on the PCI bus, respectively, the experimental setup is well documented for others to apply the same techniques to other platforms. The researchers detail their approach for exploring the system and despite the issues discovered, remark an overall high security posture. We noted three takeaways from this paper. First, while few entities are able to get access to a CPU vendor source code, this report shines light on both the white box and black box approaches of performing an in-depth security analysis of a CPU component. This report will help researchers explore other platforms even without the privileged access afforded to Google. Second, this report highlights the complexity in both modern processors as well as the confidential computing primitives that are the trust anchors for end users. Even these well-tested and competently developed systems can have issues. Opening their system to trusted third-party review should help build trust in platforms built upon their confidential computing primitives. And lastly, it is generally accepted that rolling your own crypto is a recipe for disaster. This report shows that even well-designed implementations of accepted cryptographic protocols can have subtle weaknesses that could result in total failure. These testing methodologies can be used to vet other implementations that are deployed widely to verify their adherence to properly handling edge cases. The next deep dive in this theme is Living Off the Walled Garden, Abusing the Features of the Early Launch Anti-Malware Ecosystem by Matt Graber. This work explores the protected execution environment in Microsoft's Windows that is used by anti-malware processes to prevent manipulation even by administrators. Processes protected in this manner cannot be stopped or debugged. In other words, a perfect runtime environment for a malicious process to persist. The researcher explored the protections in place, primarily very restrictive organizational agreements with Microsoft resulting in certificates that chain together to sign processes that can run in this protected mode. By searching for drivers or processes that were signed by certificates in this chain on virus total, the researcher was able to find a combination of an overly permissive driver that could be subverted and a Microsoft signed application, MS Build, that could be started in this protected mode. In order to persist arbitrary code, the signed application cannot be used to spawn a separate process. So the code is added to an MS Build test property, allowing arbitrary code to be run in MS Build's process space while being protected by the operating system. We take away two learnings from this. First, that the castle style model of hardened and highly protected execution environments can have serious ramifications when compromised. Like past examples of kernel, hypervisor, or SMM rootkits, the early launch anti-malware ecosystem offers a compelling target to attackers who want to deeply control the system and prevent other defensive processes from snooping on them. The tug of war between a lockdown positions of privilege and open computing systems is shown here clearly allowing end users to change the trusted certificates would go a long way towards preventing abuse. And second, 
VirusTotal has shown itself to be a source of information for all types of users, from defenders querying a file discovered in their environment, to malware authors testing their evasion, to attackers looking for signed binaries to subvert. Much like Shodan, VirusTotal has become a staple for users of all types, and familiarity with its capabilities can offer multiple rewards. Last in this theme, there's a Kernel Hacker Meets Future OS by Alexander Papa. In this blog post, the author, a Linux kernel contributor and security researcher, explores the microkernel-based Fuchsia operating system developed by Google. Despite the microkernel and capabilities architecture, vulnerabilities were discovered that allowed for code execution in kernel space. However, due to the limited functionality provided by the kernel, the post-exploitation steps had to explore new persistence options. The author lays out their approach to building, debugging, and fuzzing the operating system, which loads components via URIs that are automatically updated from a repository. In the limited time dedicated to this work, the author discovered issues with the KSLR and some of the capability checking logic. Small, now fixed issues, but reminders that a microkernel does not inherently mean guaranteed security. For us, this was interesting. Despite the specific weaknesses identified in this post having little real-world impact, the approach and discovered similarities between traditional OS kernels provide insights into the security of microkernels. The post-exploitation steps are especially insightful due to the reduction in kernel functionality and introduce readers to novel persistence techniques. Lastly, there's the nifty sundries we found. We start off the sundries with adaptive multi-objective optimization and gray box fuzzing by Gen Zhang et al. This work looked at the incentives driving mutation and fuzzers and explored applying the mathematical principles of multi-objective optimization to fuzzing. One of the most popular models in current use is coverage-guided fuzzing popularized by the AFL tool suite. The researchers explored the different and sometimes competing objectives in fuzzing. For example, power consumption, test case runtime, coverage, etc., and modeled it as a variant of the multi-armed bandit problem. By bringing together the deep theory from optimization of this style of game, exploring different options with unknown payoffs and costs, with vulnerability research tools, the author's fuzzer was able to fairly consistently outperform existing state-of-the-art fuzzers both in terms of power consumption and bugs discovered. Using a benchmark of real programs with real bugs left in, their tool found more bugs in the competition, which included AFL++, SimCC, and HongFuzz. We note that, as vulnerability research techniques become more mainstream and treated as a suitable topic for academic study, there will be more rigorous application of computer science theory applied to optimize quote-unquote, hacker tools. As this link between industry and academia strengthens, expect to see improvements from this collaboration. The next paper we want to highlight is Cooper Nove's The Shortest Stave, finding 134 bugs in the binding code of scripting languages with cooperative mutation, by Zhu Pang et al. This work explored the scripting execution engines embedded into various document formats to add dynamicism to rendered content. Rather than exploring the scripting engines in isolation, the researchers used an input corpus to try to identify correlations between data objects in the document format and the scripting functionality that interacted with those tools. The result was an impressive 134 new bugs across real-world programs, Adobe Reader, Foxit Reader, and Microsoft Word, that may never have been discovered by single-sided exploration. By combining mutation to objects and related scripting operations, the tool was able to trigger bugs where conditions in either the data structure or code was insufficient to trigger, but in concert was easily detected. The tooling has been released as open source and is extensible to other programming languages and related document formats. We noted two takeaways. One, 
that it should go without saying that adding a scripting execution environment to a complex data format parser will result in security concerns. PDF is already incredibly complicated to parse when well-formed, and numerous bugs have surfaced when handling malformed data. Adding in the interactions between scripting engines and data will continue to expose more bugs for quite some time. And two, that the concept of relationship-guided fuzzing is powerful, as seen here, but broadly applicable to environments where data and code operating on that data are both attacker-controlled. Watch for this technique being applied elsewhere with similarly impressive results. Next, there's Bypassing CSP with Dangling Iframes by Gareth Hayes and a related work, Bypassing Dangling Markup Injection Mitigation Bypass in Chrome by Senju Oh. Chrome supports built-in dangling markup mitigation in order to block requests containing restricted characters. Dangling markup mitigations built into the browser can help protect an application that does not properly filter or escape the less than or greater than sign or quote characters. The first article describes a content security policy or CSP mitigation bypass in Chrome. The author noticed one of their labs breaking with a specific version of Chrome. Using their tool, the Hackability Inspector, and probing for various iframe properties and injection opportunities. The author discovered that setting the iframe location of a property to about blank allowed the bypass of the Chrome mitigations to read and inject scripts into the cross-domain iframe. CSP treats about blank URLs as the same origin. However, when an attacker sets a cross-domain iframe to about blank, it becomes readable and writable by an attacker and is definitely not the same origin. In the second article, the author found a situation where a dangling tag interfered with Chromium's protocol upgrading. Chromium has a security feature that automatically attempts to upgrade unsafe HTTP protocols to HTTPS. On a web page served by HTTPS, a dangling image tag referencing a non-HTTPS source, content from the page could be leaked to an attacker. Our takeaways were twofold. First, these types of attacks may affect payment and transaction applications that depend on iframes being protected from being read or written to. The combination of an application vulnerable to injection, as well as the mitigation bypass, could lead to compromised applications. Second, these types of mitigation bypasses have found their way past the product testing and mitigation testing. Despite being a known class of attack, these two articles show it's very much an area of active exploration when coupled with other arcane features about blank or protocol upgrades, respectively. The last work in this episode is Pre-Hijacked Accounts, an empirical study of security failures in user account creation on the web by Avinash Sudharanan and Andrew Paverd. This work explored methods of hijacking accounts for online services via a novel approach of registering a victim's account prior to the victim, then waiting for the victim to use the account. For many web services that have both a legacy username and password authentication scheme, and have retrofitted their services for SSO providers, there are ways where an attacker can retain access to an account without the victim knowing. The researchers built out a number of attack primitives and manually explored half of the Alexa top 150 most traffic websites to determine vulnerability to their identified primitives, of which a majority were impacted. Some of the attack types relied on undefined behavior when an account manually created with an email and password was merged with an SSO federated account with the same email. In some implementations, the attacker could continue to use their manual credentials while the victim would use the SSO access. Other edge cases the researchers explored were with some services that allowed enterprise identity verification providers that did not verify the email addresses, for example, creating your own provider in test account mode. This would then allow attackers to be treated as an authoritative account owners despite having no access to the victim's email address. 
we take away the following three key ideas from this work. One, while the reputational risks of not claiming an account have been explored and in some cases protected against, this work shows a new security risk of not claiming an account before an attacker. Two, SSO has spread across a diverse group of online services. This work shows that the details of how each service handles their retrofitting to support SSO matters intensely. Due to the simplicity of SSO, both during account creation and subsequent logins, it's easy to imagine pre-hijacked accounts netting numerous users who never set a password to their account. And three, the non-verifying SSO attacks highlight the challenges of supporting the diversity of enterprise identity management products while also relying on certain assumptions to offer SSO to the broadest customer base possible. And that, listeners, is all for the Q2 Trends and Takeaways. To conclude, despite research that is surely being saved for next quarter's Hacker Summer Camp, the cadence of interesting work has continued to pace, bolstered by a strong complement of blog posts. It remains to be seen if this is a trend in the industry stemming from a long COVID-induced hiatus or selection bias as the Thinkscape's pipeline for collecting non-conference materials improves. Three themes emerge at the forefront of information security research in this quarter. One, new looks at network security for legacy and novel networks. Two, how modern programming languages and their environments shape software security. And three, framing how low-level researchers approach a new and foreign system target. As next quarter's episode will include one of the largest multi-events of the year, expect some gems to held back from a dramatic reveal. While there are always a few talks that captivate the media's attention in the lead-up to Hacker Summer Camp, check next quarter's issue for the work shaping the field that readers may not have caught. This show is made possible by Thinks Canary. Know when it matters. To learn more, check out canary.tools.